We need for you to guide us through this. We need for the Holy Spirit to lead us and to open these words on the pages of your book and uh, shine a light, Lord, from them and into us. And we want to receive it with openness, Lord, with purity and uh, just with desire and that we may never be satisfied with enough of it, that, that we would be a glory to you, Lord, and to lift your name up. In Jesus Christ, amen. So as you know, and uh, we've been going through, Paul is addressing, uh, now in the uh, middle of this book, he's addressing the uh, fraudulent letter that has circulated regarding uh, the fact that the day of the Lord had begun, and this was not what he had taught uh, to the Thessalonians. And so he's, he's writing this second letter, and uh, he's going to make his case uh, in a logical fashion, and he's going to present some evidence. We'll see, we'll see uh, as we go through here, three, three main evidences that he's going to show to the Thessalonians and to us to prove that the day of the Lord had not begun. Now, uh, the Thessalonians, the young believers, were at an advantage over us. I'll admit that. Everything that we're reading about, he had personally told them about, and he hadn't left anything blank. He, he told everything, and we are trying to come back, and we need the Holy Spirit to lead us because he's left things unsaid that had been said. So we need to be led by the Holy Spirit to read between the lines, if you will. And so that's what uh, we're doing in our class today. So uh, last week, we'd gotten as far as uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and I'd lifted up the fact that he, he had two evidences that he was going to talk about. I think I will go ahead and read <clears throat> from verse 3 in chapter 2 of the second book to the Thessalonians. Uh, I will read up to where I would hope to get today. We'll just see what happens. So starting in verse 3, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So, in verse 3, we see the, the first two of the evidences that he's lifted up uh, before the Thessalonians. They are um, the apostasy. You saw that. That was the word. Some, some translations may say the falling away. 
but we have the apostasy, and then we have the revealing of the man of lawlessness. So let's start first with the apostasy. Now remember, neither of these events had happened yet. That's why Paul's presenting them. This is proof that the day of the Lord hadn't started, okay? So what, does, what do you think of when you, when you hear apostasy, the apostasy? Uh, or to what does it refer? And I think I should point out that we have, it's not just apostasy, it's the apostasy. So we have a definite article in front of the word the in front of apostasy, usually indicative of a singular event or a climactic uh, coming together of things, okay? Uh, so many expositors, what do you think of when, when you think of apostasy? Any thoughts? A number of uh, expositors believe that the apostasy refers to a falling away or a departure from doctrinal truths of the church or, or a widespread departure from true faith in God. In other words, a spiritual departure. If I were to ask you to think of some examples of that occurring in our time in, uh, in Christian churches or in churches at least that would identify themselves as Christian, can you think of things that might be considered apostasy that are evident in our time? Jeff, you're nodding your head. What are you thinking of? <laughs> okay, so sometimes I would put that under my number six here. Focus on marketing, uh, merchandising, and uh, even some others uh, uh, do a, a sort of a prosperity type of a gospel. So that's a departure from, tr from the true teachings, the true faith that was delivered to the saints. Uh, what about just a denial of basic doctrines of the church, like uh, the Trinity or the inerrancy of Scripture or the virgin birth? Uh, we're at a time, I know we're seeing one of the mainstream mainline denominations that has ordination of homosexuals. And with that, I'd, go, I'd also say the affirming of same-sex marriage we're seeing in our time. Uh, women pastors. Um, avoid teaching tough topics like on sin and hell and damnation. We're seeing that that's not a popular uh, thing to discuss. Uh, you know, getting to what Jim had been teaching on... Uh, our beginnings, we see a, 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 some churches using evolution as the source of our beginnings because it's science. Um, you know, I was listening to David Jeremiah this week, and he was talking about this very thing, and he pointed out that there was uh, currently this uh, time of so-called high-profile Christians who are all of a sudden denying their faith and denouncing Christianity I didn't even know the character of Josh Harris is one that has been lifted up, you know, and uh, so is there, you know, that, that's all falling under apostasy. So when we think of apostasy, I think that there's probably four aspects that we should con consider uh, in the general and in the specific and in the spiritual and in the physical, okay? So uh, the apostasy, apostasy here spoken of seems to be more specific. And then, so whether it's physical or spiritual, is there's a case to be made there. Uh, 
I'd ask then, is, is our day and age, is this when apostasy is really the worst it's ever been? Did they have apostasy back at the time when the scriptures were being, being put together? I don't think this is the only time of apostasy. I think it's been ongoing, at least in a general fashion. Um, so it's, it's happening in our day, but it's not always just been our day. Okay, so I, I kind of like what J. Vernon McGee says on the topic here. He says he teaches apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia. Sorry, a potato? No, <laughs> apostasia, apostasia. And it means, this has got several meanings. It means a falling away, departure, removal from, and even rebellion. And he says it can be spiritual or it can be physical. And it's used both ways in the scriptures. And he says that there are actually two kinds of uh, removal that are going to take place uh, at the, at before the day of the Lord begins. And he says uh, that the organized church will depart and exhibit a wholesale departure uh, from, uh, from the faith prior to the day of the Lord beginning. You know, and there's some scripture, Paul himself, I just pulled up 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, speaking of the general apostasy that's, that is to come. Paul says in chapter 4, uh, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, that sounds spiritual to me, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That sounds like a human element to it as well. So we've that. And you know, Jesus, he spoke to, a, to apostasy coming as well in Matthew 24 when he's dealing with the things of the day of the Lord and tribulation and all that. He says, uh, in verse 7 of chapter uh, 24 of Matthew, Jesus himself says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And here we have Jesus speaking uh, to his believing Jewish disciples. He says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. And at that time, many will, listen, fall away. That's apostasy. And will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. This, this is a very sad statement next. Most people's love will grow, grow cold. That's just dying faith. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So apostasy. You know, there's a fellow, uh, a pastor in Sugarland, Texas. He's a Dr. Andy Woods. He's a pretty smart fellow. I just found him uh, recently. He's, a, he's both a lawyer and, a, and a, a pastor. He's got a Ph.D. and a Greek scholar. He has a book out, and uh, it's uh, 10 reasons why this term, apostasy, here should be translated as physical departure. He sees it as the removal of the church. So anyway, uh, just leave that out there. Now, the second uh, evidence that Paul lifts forward of why they're not in the day of the Lord or the tribulation is that um, this, this man of lawlessness that he speaks of, he's got to be revealed. Who is this person, the man of lawlessness? He's also called son of perdition, and perdition actually is a reference to the, the, the doom of his destruction that awaits him. 
but he's a son. He's a man of lawlessness. He's called lawlessness because it says he's the man of it. They use that word because this is his chief characteristic. It's lawlessness. This is someone who's in his mind above the law and follows his own law and will pay no attention to God's law. Any ideas who he might be? I'll wait till I hear it. Antichrist. Okay, that's that's uh, pretty much it. Um, verse four that I read gives us some uh, greater clarity as to his identity. Let me read that again. Who uh, this person who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is the ultimate demonstration of self-deification. This characterizes him. And there's an event. The event he's talking of is specific. Y'all remember last week that we read from Daniel, chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 9, uh, verses 20 through 27. And that was, this, that was in there. He's referring to a specific event where he holds himself up to be God and sits in the temple like he's God. Jesus referred to that himself in uh, Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, where? Which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountain. So Jesus spoke of this event here that we just read in 2 Thessalonians is the abomination of desolation, something that happens at a particular part in time. And we were told in Daniel when that occurs. Anybody remember? Remember, there's that last seven weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks. There's that last, uh, that last uh, seven years of Daniel when, uh, that hasn't occurred yet. But in the middle of it, Something's going to happen. At the beginning of it, something happens. Um, say it, Porter. Makes a covenant. Makes a covenant. So this, uh, from what I read, the desolation, abomination of desolation is in the middle of the seven weeks when he breaks the covenant. It says that he's not been revealed yet. There's one event that would reveal the Antichrist immediately, and it's in Daniel. Anybody recall what it is? You said it actually, Porter. It's the making of the covenant. The one who makes the covenant with Israel and, the, and their enemies for a seven-year uh, treaty, that is the Antichrist. That will be the Antichrist. When you see that happen, that would be the Antichrist. You shouldn't see that happen, though. Let me just say that. Okay? Now, uh, so we have this fellow, the Antichrist, and we're going to look at him a bit. And uh, a good descriptive of him is found in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. This is a real good descriptive of him. Now, you know, this book has got a lot of uh, symbolic language in it and all. And it can be difficult, but most of it explains itself. Uh, but let me go ahead and read Revelation 13, 1 through 10. It says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. We know from Revelation 12 that this dragon is indeed the devil. It's Satan. And then it says, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. 
and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. If you went back to Revelation 12, you'd also see this is highly descriptive of Satan as well, some of the numbers and the heads and the, and the horns and things. And listen to this verse. And the beast which I saw, we're speaking of the Antichrist, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Where have we seen those creatures before? Was anyone in here when we studied Daniel uh, last year? Uh, what do those creatures remind you of? Right, those are, those are nations that came before. There were four. Daniel was given a vision. And in it, he was, he was seeing human history unfolding before him of the times of the Gentiles. And those nations represented... We went forward in the, uh, in the representation of these animals here, but now we're going backwards. He goes with the leopard was indicative of Greece. Remember that? And the bear was Medo-Persia, and the lion was Babylon. But there was a fourth beast. Remember, a terrible beast. But he's not listed here, or is he? Because he is the beast. The Antichrist represents that last kingdom, right? What, Sue, do you have something? Okay, so we're seeing some symbolism and things in here, but we're still talking about the Antichrist. This is very important. And the dragon gave him his power. The dragon gives the Antichrist his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the earth, the whole earth, was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months uh, was given to him. That's three and a half years. So this would be the middle of the seven years when he starts to really take over as his evil self. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given with him listen to this, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. What did Jesus say about the church and the gates of Hades? It will not overcome them. All right, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said the gates of Hades would not overpower, but here we see saints and, he, and the Antichrist will overcome them. It's this clearly. And authority on every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written, from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So if the church is not going to be overpowered by, uh, by the uh, powers of Hades, hell if you wish, and these are, what does that say about the church? This is not the church. These saints are not the church when this is happening. Okay, they're not here. All right. Uh, so, logically following Paul's argument, his, his presentation, he's saying that neither of these two things had happened. And so, because of that, neither had the day of the Lord begun, because they were requirements for that to happen. Verse 5, back to the text, says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? He reminds them, again, Paul, he told him this personally, personally, he told him this, okay? And I believe it's a remarkable thing to see. 
just how much Paul did teach this young church in so little time. Things that he thought were important, deep things. This is not superficial stuff. And he was taught, you know, even touching the prophetic word, and he reminds them of it. He's reminding them of it here. Okay. Any comments on that? So we'll pick up then in verses 6 and 7, and we'll be introduced to the, the third reason that Paul is going to lift up uh, to uh, tell them that they're not in the day of the Lord. Verses 6 and 7, it says, And you know what restrains him now, <clears throat> so that in his time he will be revealed. Who will be revealed? The Antichrist, okay? He's being restrained. He will be revealed in time, but he's being restrained. Uh, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. In verse 6, it was what restrains. And in verse 7, it's he who restrains. Okay? So notice that we did go from a neuter to a masculine pronoun in the process of speaking of this restrainer. Okay? So they knew and we don't. <laughs> It'd be nice if we had the certain answer, but we don't. Okay, so we have to summarize what it was. Uh, we uh, surmise, excuse me, what they had. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. I w I wouldn't uh, fight you on that one. Okay, uh, so you know. So the restrainer then we see is an obstacle uh, that has to be removed before the day of the Lord can begin. And the reason for it is in verse 7, so that the Antichrist can be revealed. Uh, there have been a lot. Who is the restrainer? Anybody got any ideas? Say it again. See, it, you all have gotten to a point that has taken theologians decades to get to if not longer, but we're going to discuss all the options anyway, okay? I'm glad you have the answer, but let's look at the options because other things have been put forth, and the smarter you get, the less you know. So we're going to see what the smart people have looked at coming up through, the through time. Now, remember this letter was written around 51 A.D., and uh, at that time, uh, Nero had not been cut loose on Christians. And he is it, uh, the preterist, that's a viewpoint that everything in Revelation has already happened and we're just kind of in this spiritual nowhere. Uh, but the preterist thought that Nero was the Antichrist and that uh, a fellow named uh, Seneca, who was a Stoic philosopher, was the one who was withholding him, holding him back. But, you know, uh, nothing that was supposed to follow has followed. And uh, so that's, that's pretty much ruled out. Roman government was also lifted up because they brought in the system of laws and justice. Well, that's kind of ruled out too. Nothing, nothing is, they're gone. Uh, human government <laughs> has been lifted up as restraining evil. That one becomes harder to swallow by the day. Um, and plus, I don't see ever human government being removed, even when the, when the uh, uh, Antichrist gets here. Satan was another option put forth. That's fairly absurd because we see that the power that the Antichrist, his ultimate power comes from who? Satan. Satan restricting, restraining Satan is like a house divided, and, you know, it falls apart. So that doesn't make sense. Probably the very best runner-up 
to the right answer, what I consider to be the right answer, is Michael the archangel, right? Let me say this. God has no equal to start with, no equal. Satan, he may well have an equal or something close to it. And I would say if there was, it'd probably be Michael or one of the archangels. Satan is a created uh, being, and he was a, a high angel. So Michael has been put forth, and that's the, the hardest one to deal with. But let's, let's talk about it. Whatever is restraining the power of sin, evil, Satan, and the Antichrist has got to be pretty stupendous supernatural power, okay? We'll talk about that as we, as we look at the Holy Spirit. But Michael the archangel, uh, I ruled him out, though, when I just went to the scriptures where he's found. Uh, Daniel 10, 13 and 14 says, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel, says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, now we have a definition of who Michael is, one of the chief princes, came to me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to you to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people, that would be the Jews, in the latter days, that would be what we're talking about, time of the uh, day of the Lord, uh, for the vision pertains to days yet future. That's one. Another, uh, Jude 8 and 9, this is a good one regarding Satan and Michael. And this is in a section of Jude that's dealing with the lack of respect for authority. And this is what Jude says. Yet, in the same way, these men, they were the false teachers, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Now he holds up, as an example, Michael. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, Satan, and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael deferred to God, okay, out of, out of his respect for authority. Not his respect for Satan, but his respect for authority, which is the point being made in that portion of Jude. Now, the last one, this is one that absolutely rules out Michael altogether. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now at that time, what time? We'll see. Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, Israel, will stand, will arise. So he's not being removed. He will be there. And here's the time. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jesus used similar uh, description of the, the day of the Lord. Uh, no time like it before nor after. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. But Michael stands for Israel during that time. So he's not removed. So that takes Michael out. So we now have... One other option, the question here being, who is the one able to restrain, in a general sense, evil and sin, but in a specific sense, the Antichrist and Satan's power? And we have it. Who is it? God. Only God has the, the supernatural power to do that. Uh, do we have any uh, examples yeah, throughout the Bible? But God is the one uh, in, uh, in Genesis 6-3. Remember the days before the flood? when men's uh, evil uh, nature had reached a peak, uh, we have, then the Lord said, my spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, shall not strive with man forever. In other words, he was striving with him. He was restraining him because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120. So that's restraint of sin in a general fashion. 
Remember, the strainer must be greater than the one that is restrained. Now, in a more specific fashion, how about the book of Job? The devil, <clears throat> even Satan is allowed to afflict. Even though he's allowed to afflict Job, uh, the devil never goes farther than he's permitted by God. Okay? Instead, Satan, who is the embodiment, the embodiment of sin, is restrained by God. And when you think about it, reality, it would be impossible for any believer to accomplish anything for God in his own strength if, if it were not for the protective hand of God the whole time. Satan hates God's people, and we would be just constantly bombarded. We weren't being protected. And I believe that is a work of the Holy Spirit, just as it was in the days of Noah and has, has always been. And I think that in our days, he also works through the church. Okay, so now... I believe it is God we're talking about, the restrainer, the Holy Spirit. So now we've created a dilemma or a, 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 quandary, a quandary to deal with. If it is indeed God, then we have to figure out how he's removed, okay? So as God, the Holy Spirit has all of the attributes of God, among which are his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence. So the question becomes... How could he ever be taken out of the way or removed? In other words, how do you remove one who is omnipresent? How do you remove one who is omnipresent? Let's consider this for a minute. The Holy Spirit has always worked in the world, okay, from its very beginning. However, on the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit came in a special way, right, and with a special mission. That's the, the birthday of the church. Likewise, just as Christ has always been present in the world, he came in a special way, didn't he, into the world in his incarnation and his birth, and, and he accomplished his work on the cross, and after he was resurrected, uh, he ascended, and he went back. He went back to the Father. So he, in a way, he left, but remember his words, his parting words were, Lo, I'm always with you, Matthew 28, 20. So getting back to the Holy Spirit, Ever since he came on Pentecost, part of, his, part of his work, and we're going to look at a lot of his work next week, but part of his work has been to indwell believers, all right? And that is the church. Indeed, the true church is comprised of believers who are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The church, indeed, has had some restraining influence on society down through the years, and that... Uh, is against the evil that's, that's going on in this world through, through things like civic righteousness and law and order and, and uh, combating issues like abortion. The church has stood there. But then we have this dilemma. How do you, how do you remove the indwelling Holy Spirit? We have two, there's, there are only two options. Either the Spirit stops indwelling people and leaves in that mission, or He takes the church with Him. So which is it? But we have scripture for that, that, he, that he, he will not leave us. John, Jesus gave us some comforting words, he said, uh, 14. I'm not seeing it. Oh, here we go. John 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Some places it's called comforter. That's the Holy Spirit that he may be with you, how long? Forever, forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, 
Why? Because he abides in you. And that's a permanent residence. That's, that's, that's a, a, a abidement. Okay? And he will be with you. So he doesn't leave you. To abide is to remain. So the Holy Spirit's not going to leave the church. So then it makes sense then that the removal of the church is what we're talking about. The indwelt uh, Holy Spirit indwelt believers. And when that happens, <laughs> it's going to release the world. The godless men and women with unchecked satanic influence are going to be free to move toward evil and the power of sin as never before. And I will tell you, when you see that happen, you might as well say, welcome the day of the Lord. Now, there's a phrase. Any, any comments to that point? There's a phrase also in... Verse 7, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And, that, and then, then it comes the next uh, statement about the restrainer. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I've, I've read that hundreds of times. And usually I just say, yeah, the, the forces of lawlessness and evil have always been present and active in our fallen world. But so too does God restrain and maintains a, a restraint uh, because we have no idea how bad this world could be right now if there were not a restrainer on it. But I just, I, this time, for some reason, the last week, the, that phrase, the mystery of lawlessness, is really, being already at work, has really caught my attention. This is odd. For some reason, it says big rabbit trail on my notes, but <laughs> hopefully you'll bear with me. Verse 7, this phrase, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, standard commentaries, um, in fact, I copied this verbatim out of uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says uh, something like this. Then and now, Satan has been directing a movement against God's divine law, which was and even now is active. And I would agree with that, that that, that is true. But that interpretation is really more of a general statement that really almost no one would deny that. Just recall how evil things got in the antediluvian times, the, you know, before Noah, before the flood, how evil man was. But this phrase, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's occupying a very strategic pay, place in this passage. And uh, Paul is trying to make a very important point. So I'm not sure that that general commentary is appropriate. Two things jump out at me and suggest a deeper search is in order. First, the noun, lawlessness, it's the same Greek word, anomias, which is used to, to describe the Antichrist that we saw in verse 3. Same word. It has several meanings, such as sin, iniquity, wickedness, depending on which Bible translation you'll, you'll have. The, the Antichrist is referred to as son of, son of uh, uh, or man of sin, or man of iniquity. But its placement here ties it directly to the Antichrist. And it makes whatever it is specific to him, okay? Second, we have here the word mystery from the Greek mysterion. Now, ever since I began studying the Bible in earnest, uh, my mentors like J. Vernon McGee have always pointed out that when you see a mystery in the Bible, it's important, okay? In fact, a mystery in the New Testament is a new truth previously unknown before its revelation here in this passage, for instance. So the interpretation that just basically says uh, Satan has evil plans and is working as hard as he can against God is really nothing new. 
Certainly not a mystery. So what does this phrase pertain to? Let me put forth a question to show you where I'm going, and I think it's going to emphasize this severe limitation and restraint that Satan is actually under. Actually, it's going to be a couple of questions. First question, does Satan presently at this time know with absolute certainty who the Antichrist is? No. Has he ever known exactly who the Antichrist is or would be? Why not? Very good. Let me tell you what uh, Jesus said with regard to the beginning of all this time of tribulation, the day of the Lord. He said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He's the only one that knows. Okay. And he was referring to the beginning of the day of the Lord, which we believe has to occur before the rapture. Excuse me, the, which we believe occurs after the rapture. Okay? And this is why the rapture is referred to as imminent, right? We believe that in our statement of faith. And it has nothing in that it's imminent and that nothing has to happen before it occurs and also that no one knows when it will occur except the Father. The problem for Satan is that the doctrine of imminency puts him in a very precarious situation. He must always be ready, ready to go with his man, the Antichrist, waiting in the wings. Or as Paul states here, the law, that here, lawlessness is already at work. I think of it as he's already checked in, clocked in, if you will. Now, maybe this is a long run for a short slide, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Regarding this situation of Satan, has anyone in here seen the, the movie Jaws? You, you know the movie Jaws. Well, it remind, this all reminded me of a scene, and Sue told me not to do this because she didn't know what I was doing, but I'm going to anyway. Anyway, it's an intense scene in Jaws. And the three men, uh, I think it's Chief Brody and the Captain Quint and then Hooper, the marine biologist played by Richard Dreyfus, they're all on this shark hunting boat, right? And they, the first, they see this huge shark swim up. This is the first time they see it, and you see the proportions in relation to the boat, and it's just like, whoa. And at that time, Quint decides he needs to shoot some harpoons into this shark. But they, uh, in order to, to catch, the, to tire the shark out, but they need to be attached to these huge uh, barrel kegs that are floating devices that will wear him out. And uh, when he steps up to the bow with his harpoon rifle, he sees that the cable's not attached to these things. Y'all know the scene I'm talking about? And he yells at, at Hooper, which is Richard Dreyfus, to tie on the cable. cable uh, Hooper says, yeah, he'll do it. But he immediately runs below deck. And he's got this high-tech tracking device that he wants to attach uh, to the uh, floater before he ties on the cable. And he comes back up, and Quint's looking for him, and that shark's sw shark swimming rapidly towards him. And he threatens Cooper to hurry as the shark approaches so that he doesn't miss the shot. And then right before Quint fires, Ho Hooper yells back just as he completes the knot, don't wait for me. Don't wait for me. And I think that's what Satan is saying here in this phrase, don't wait for me. He says all things that are necessary are in place, and he will not be the holdup when the restrainer is removed. Okay, any comments on that? Okay, let's go back. Verse 8, I don't even know where we are. 
We're good. We're doing great. Just a bit more. Verses 8 and 9. Let's, let's review those again. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Okay, so we have more descriptives here of the, of the lawless character. Uh, and we also see his ultimate uh, demise here, his ultimate destruction at Christ's second coming. So in the short passages here, we've spanned the entire seven-year uh, period of the tribulation because this occurs, what we're speaking of being destroyed by the breath of his mouth occurs at the second coming. Pretty sweet. So uh, notice how handily, though, the Lord will, it says slay. Other, you know, It can also be um, uh, interpreted consume or dispatch. He's going to slay this Antichrist. It says with the breath of his mouth. Now what symbolism uh, does this phrase refer to? The breath of his mouth of Christ. I'm going to read Revelation 19, 20 and 21 where it's actually used. Uh, it says, And I saw the beast... This is John speaking of what he'd seen. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's, this is at Armageddon we're looking at. And the beast was seized, dispatched, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest, that means the remaining armies and generals, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Speaking of Jesus, the sword that, the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. What do you think he's referring to? The Word of God. Right. Let's go to Hebrews 4, uh, verses 12 and 13. The description of the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to deal. And I think that's with his, just his word, that he's able to vanquish any that would stand against him, all the evil. Uh, we also see that uh, Satan... Uh, will be intimately uh, in contact with his man, the, the, the Antichrist. Uh, he's associated, it's, it's Satan's uh, powers, and it's his coming associated with the Antichrist. And, uh, you know, even though Satan must work by limitation, he has always wanted to be God. And the way he deals is in counterfeit methods. I think that the connectedness between Satan and the Antichrist will be similar to what you see between the Father and the Son when Jesus was here. I think that Satan is going to be right there with him the whole time, the Antichrist. And we shouldn't be surprised because the, pow the powers from Satan are going to be pretty uh, awe-inspiring. And we're talking about miracles and signs and wonders. These are the things that overwhelm people and uh, they convince people and they deceive the masses. All right, They'll say, who is, like to the, who is like the beast is what the people will say when they see his signs. Okay, we have a minute. Uh, verses 10 and 12. I think this is a teaching that's pretty clear about um, the fact that during the tribulation, 
a lot of people will be deceived and fail to recognize Christ as their Savior. Um, the Antichrist, anti means both against and it means instead of. He not, he not only will be against Christ, he'll be holding himself instead of, up instead of Christ. And people who have, may have rejected or resisted Christ, when opportunity was there, were going to flock to this man. And their foolish gullibility is a judgment from God, but really, it's really just getting what they want. And it's used against them. It's the consequence of their choice. You know, I'm not going to read it, but you, in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, there are three places where God says, where the word says, and God let them go or let them over or gave them to their own devices. Three places. And it's basically the same principle that we're looking at here. Does that mean that anyone who rejects the gospel or trusting in Christ prior to the rapture is now unsavable or it's going to be impossible to trust the Lord? I'm not, I'm not prepared to say that. I think that, uh, you know, I just defer to God's character and principle. The principle is, you know, while there is life, there is hope. So that's all I'll say on that. Next week we're going to look at some uh, very interesting passages of Scripture. Um, Kelly, would you close us in prayer, please?